week here. It has to be a new series, and so we'll start here. And you might wonder why. It's a book that I've become familiar with over the past few years, and it's a wonderful start, in my opinion, for any ministry. It's hopeful and wholesome. It encourages us to get back on track and to have a right attitude about it. And it pushes us to correct fractured relationships, whether they be found within the church or throughout our families and lives or society itself. I'm sure we all have fractured relationships to some capacity, but the hope is that mending fractured relationships would be done to the glory of God. And so Philippians is a pertinent book. It's a book that doesn't deal with any major controversy outside of a petty disagreement between two women within a congregation, but it is an encouragement to all to unify behind the mission of Christ and to be encouraged by the work of Christ, not only within our own lives, but also the work of the Spirit and society itself. And so we'll be in Philippians. It's a timeless book, a jewel in the Pauline corpus, and a reminder of God's grace to us. But before we hear from these first eight verses or so and, and learn from the first two, let us begin with a word of prayer. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your scripture. We pray, O Lord, that it would come to life in our own lives today. As we hear it, we'd be convicted by our own sin and drawn to grace in the Lord. And we pray, O Lord, that as we hear from it, that we would do so in simplicity and in truth. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Stand for the reading of God's word found in Philippians chapter 1. We'll begin in verse 1, and we will read through the first eight verses. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all are making my uh, you all are making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in my defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. The grass withers and the flower fades, the word of the Lord will stand forever. You may be seated. As I was reading this introduction, you may come away from it thinking it is rather mundane, rather simple, something that you've probably read throughout the scriptures at least 13 times in Paul's epistles. It seems common. It seems like something that Paul would write to about every other church that he has written to. But it, Philippians actually stands out somewhat different. It stands out with something familiar and personal to the church of Philippi. 
as my family has begun to move to uh, Illinois, we have enjoyed a plethora of mail uh, in our mailbox. Now, I tend to be a person that likes to receive mail. I, every day when I get the chance, I excitingly walk out to my mailbox to see what has been delivered from the Postal Service. Unfortunately, to my own chagrin and shame, there's never anything really of importance or interest, but I, I am excited. I'm excited to go check because some days, maybe one in a blue moon or once a month, there's something exciting in the mailbox. I get many dear-valued customer pieces of parcel. ADT surely wants me to sign up for their security service. They come with free service, $1,500 value. You have won. But I know that it is fake familiarity, fake interest. It is when I find a box in my mailbox that I get excited, or a personal letter, something that has been directed particularly to me. In the same way, Paul, as he writes this letter and sends it to the church of Philippi, they are excited. They are excited by a prized letter from someone who they are familiar with, someone who wrote a letter to them after he himself has planted the church. This is not mere junk mail. This is not merely a dear-valued customer introduction. There is familiarity. Paul knows their struggles. He knows their problems. He knows their triumphs. He knows of the two women that are struggling within their midst. He knows that they, have, they are distracted, that they aren't as effective as they once were. And so he writes and begins this letter with subtle details that shows his familiarity. And so we're going to, as we begin this sermon series, think of the overarching broad nature of Paul's letter to the Philippians. And so we're not going to merely stay within those first two verses, but, but look through the main theme. And that is the theme of unity, being united, rectifying the disagreements and being united in Christ. And so when our relationships fracture, Paul wants us to, at the beginning of this letter, to focus on Christ. When our relationships fracture, keep your focus on Christ. How does Paul keep his focus on Christ? Well, Paul focuses first on Christ's humility. We see that in verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. It is not typical when Paul opens a letter actually to just merely address himself as a servant. Usually you get apostle, apostle and servant, but never outside of the book of Philippians do you get merely servant. Paul is identifying himself with not only his status before God, but also as we've read just a few moments ago in Isaiah 52 and 3 with the servitude of Christ. You want to, if you want to mend your fractured relationships, keeping your focus on Christ, you must first learn Christ's humility. You must first learn Christ's lowliness, and you yourself will be lowly too. The word servant here, more literally translated bondservant or, or slave, shows us the lowliness that Paul ascribes to not only himself, but his son in the faith, Timothy. He is a lowly apostle. Paul elsewhere says he is the chief among sinners, the, the least valued of the apostolic tradition. He shows himself to be lowly. The idea of slave in the ancient world meant more commonly to be a talking tool, 
That's how the ancient Greeks would have understood this word. You were a talking tool for your master. You did his bidding. You did his work. You were no different than a plow or a hammer. And the founder of the Philippian church viewed himself in light of Christ's bondage for his own self. He is a talking tool of Christ, a talking tool for God. It's important to see the lowliness of Christ. This is not obviously not to be viewed in the lens of our own slavery history, but in the lens of the ancients. It's a lowliness. It's a lowliness, and it is both that and, as we see, also an honor. We see in Philippians here, as Paul says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ, we both know that on the one hand that it is a lowly nature that Paul puts himself in, but it is also an honored status. As we think throughout church history and even our own church, to be a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ is not only lowly, but it is also privileged. We look and desire to be servants of Christ himself. It is a valued position. When you say that you are a servant of Christ, it is an honored position. But even as we think of the context surrounding what Paul is writing here, we are reminded that who he's writing to is actually very interesting because the Philippians are a proud people. They love the honor, but they do not like the lowliness. Philippi was little Rome in many regards. It was a place where uh, military servicemen would retire in citizenship. It was a place of relaxation. It was your little Italy found in Manhattan, a place of paradise. And so they wanted nothing to do with lowliness. They wanted nothing to be with talking tools. They desired to be privileged. And Paul calls them in the beginning, instead of focusing solely on the honorary name apostle, directs the Philippians' minds to their lowliness, to their servanthood. What better way to fracture, to mend fractured relationships within that church and our church than to lower ourselves? Better to be talking tools for Christ, as one commentator says, than haughty, privileged Philippians. It's better to be lowly. Paul elsewhere says, follow me as I follow Christ. It all builds and combines together well. Believers, as we see, are called to be lowly. Lowly like Paul is lowly. Lowly like Christ himself is lowly. And therefore, none of us can be, as William Henley's poem Invictus calls us to, the master of our own fate, the captain of our own soul. We are all subject to Christ himself. And because we are all servants in his kingdom, that humility, we are all also equal. But we see the blessing for those who are lowly and the grace and peace to you from our God. Though it is a common phrase, it would be a phrase that only Paul would give to those who are believers. It is certainly a salutation, a, a good morning, a welcome. But it is more than that for those who are in Christ. Grace, unmerited favor, peace. May there be hope and purity and stability within your congregation. For those who lower themselves, there is grace and peace. For those who are subjected under the Lord Jesus Christ, they will find grace and peace. There is a reward. There is an encouragement. 
In other words, for those who Jesus saves, he also enslaves. He draws us together in our lowly state to unite us. We are one people, all equal under the Lord as his servant. We all have many lords in our lives, at least potential lords. There are many idols that vie for our time, for our love, for our affection. There are many things that we are tempted to call Lord. We may call success Lord, money Lord, what we can buy with money. We're certainly materialists. We may place our lordship over the things that we love, our affections, our romance. I've seen many church libraries filled with Christian romance novels. We, We can idolize and love romance. It could be reputation and respect. We want to have a good name. We want to be honored. We want to be exalted. It could be that we're afraid of others' opinions. So we hush up, terrified by rejection or ridicule. There are so many things that we can call Lord over our lives, and all of us call something Lord or someone. And what we learn here is that who we ought to call Lord Overall, is Jesus Christ himself. And when we call him Lord, we lower ourselves. But even more, in regards to the general idea of the sermon, even more in regards to relationships, relationships are often ruined by our own self-importance, by envy, by rivalry, by selfish ambition. But when friends serve each other, they thrive. When they lower themselves and, and offer a hand, the relationship matures and grows. In other words, when we humble ourselves, we think of others before ourselves. And so in the first point, uh, when our relationships are fractured, we focus on Christ like Paul. Paul focuses on his humility, but he also focuses on Christ's or his identity. We see this throughout the rest of verse 1. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. The term saint, the idea of being holy, set apart, is a phrase, a word that is only used in regards to those who are in Christ. The idea of sainthood, the idea of being holy, set apart. It is the idea in the Old Testament of being a privileged uh, object within the temple worship is holy. It is set apart is no longer corrupt. It is ready for holy use. It is ready to be used by God. It is not corrupted. The idea of holiness and holy uh, separates the believer from their own sinfulness. We are Presbyterians, and I don't think I have to labor total depravity among us. I assume that's presupposed. If it's not, we'll circle around later. But We understand our sinfulness, but when we come in the Lord Jesus Christ, we come with a new identity. When we come to Him and we focus on Him, we are reminded regularly of our new identity in Him. And so we are called also by Paul to focus on our identity. He addresses all of the saints in Philippi as saints. In this time period, in the Jewish synagogues, they would have distinguished types of saints. Those Gentiles, they would have certainly been the true believers. But those Gentiles, those pesky Gentiles who would come to faith would have a different designation. They would be God-fearers. 
They would not be those who were Jewish. They were separate. They were a subcategory. They were below the other believers in the synagogues. And the same as you'd go to the temple of, in Jerusalem, those Gentiles who came to believe would stay in the outer courts. They were never allowed, even as God-fearers, into the inner courts because they were not God's chosen people. There's a separation for the Gentiles and the Jews. But what we see here with Paul, it is, it is intentional that he weds them together. Jew and Gentile, Greek or Israelite, you are all saints now in Christ, unified as one body. You see a unifying nature of Paul addressing all of those who are in Philippi as saints. They are to be one, one people, not subcategories of people, but one people. We tend to use some of these religious words uh, proverbially, you know, uh, she's a saint, he's a saint, but there's a much deeper and richer meaning to our saintly nature in Christ. One, because it's bound to Christ, we are saints in Christ, but also because of our new identity in Him. If you look through this passage, just these few short two verses, you see the identity come up over and over again, that they were to be saints in Christ, that they were slaves in Christ, that they are greetings with blessings in Christ. Everything is in Christ to be identified with Christ. There is a new identity for those who are in Christ, and that identity mends fractured relationships. If you all are truly in Christ, you will unite together as one people, as saints. But even more narrowly, Paul then addresses the saints who are leaders in the church. He doesn't only greet those who are believers, he also greets with a special attention to overseers and deacons. And you might say, well, why does he do this? Is it just a, a kind thing to do? No, I, I believe that Iodia and Syntyche, the two women that were quarreling, were trying to separate the apostle from the leadership of the church. We are of Paul. You are of these overseers and deacons. There are two groups growing within the congregation, and Paul nips it in the bud by particularly, with great emphasis, acknowledging the overseers and deacons within the congregation. Nips it in the bud. We are all on the same team. We are of the same mind. We are united as leaders in God's church. The identity of God's leaders in Christ are important, as the leaders of even this church are those who teach this church to live in a greater emphasis of their identity in Christ. They are examples. We often, and I often reference, our, our leadership even within our own country is downriver from the culture. And what that means is that we elect people who are like us. Well, your elders are to be the best of us. They are to lead us. They are to teach us. They are to show us what it looks like to be a humble servant in the church, but also to show us how to focus on that new identity in Christ. In other words, if our elders are united, our church will be united. I have so many great stories of old churches that 
you can see the disunity of the church within the leadership of the church. When there's dis- disagreement, vehement disagreement within the elders or within the diaconate, that trickles out very quickly to the rest of the congregation. And that's how sides form. But when you see elders come together united, even when they disagree perhaps with the decision, you'll see no such discord within the body. It's when elders pick away, find their group, make their cohort, their constituency, is when you find trouble in the church. And so the elders have a a primal role in the culture of the church, in teaching the congregation to lean in to their identity in Christ in humility. We've all seen poorly managed sports teams. Uh, You know that I'm from Chicago, and I've seen a lot of that in my day. I've seen that as a White Sox, lifelong White Sox fan. We're 26th in viewership in all the MLB, so very low. I've seen it with the, the Bears. Oh, golly, the Bears. I, I remember 2006 like it was yesterday. That was when the Bears went to the Super Bowl. And I remember the leadership of the team at that, at that time. And I remember before the kick, the announcers, as they often said during Rex Grossman's tenure as quarterback, Will we get good Rex or bad Rex today? Will Rex Grossman lead his team to a Super Bowl championship, or will he fizzle out? He often fizzled out, but some days were good for Rex Grossman, and that day was not. Uh, Peyton Manning would lead the Colts, and the Monsters of the Midway would have no defense that could stop them, even as impeccable as both teams were. Sometimes your leaders, and sometimes you, are wondering if you're going to have a good Rex day or a bad Rex day. Are your leaders like Rex Grossman or Peyton Manning? I don't often lean into sports illustrations, but here we are. We, how Rex led failed his team. How Rex led failed his team, and often how our leaders lead fail the team. And so the admonishment and the encouragement for all of us here is not only to elect good men that will lead us well, but to also follow their leadership when they do. But the greater call is for those who are officers, ordained officers within our church, to recognize that great calling, to be more like Christ than like Rex Grossman, to be stable, to setting aside our idols, to focusing our identity not on our sin, but upon Christ himself. When your relationships fracture, keep your focus on Christ. Paul focuses on his humility. He focuses on his identity. But lastly, and probably most subtly, you might debate me on this, Paul focuses on Christ's selflessness. We see this throughout all the passage. I'll reread it. It's so short. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God, our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. The subtle note of selflessness is strong throughout the text. We see it primarily in those first three words, Paul and Timothy. Paul doesn't commonly reference a letter with a co-author. He, he intentionally, like he has done in the last two sections we've discovered, he intentionally includes Timothy. Why does he include Timothy? It is because he must selflessly understand 
that he has to pass the baton on at some point. And as he stays imprisoned in Rome now, as Epaphroditus cares for him, as Epaphroditus was sent by Philippi to care for him, he is sensing his own mortality. And it may not be today, it may not be tomorrow, it may not be even this year that Paul dies, but he knows that his time is short. And he must prepare the way for the future. And in order to prepare the way for the future, there must be some recognition of selflessness of the ability to pass that baton on. It's so hard to pass on a baton. You want to hold it. You want to clutch it. You want to maintain your own influence, your own authority, your own name. And the moment you let go of that baton, there has to be an utter trust that who you pass it on to will not destroy your legacy. Ecclesiastes, a great book that if you didn't read during the pandemic, is to your own shame it was so helpful for me as as navigated that interesting couple of years. So good. And, and one thing that Ecclesiastes harps on quite regularly is this idea of passing on. Everything is like a vapor. It's here one moment and the next. Part of that is why we die. We die and we have to pass on all that we are to our children. And sometimes, as the book of Ecclesiastes notes, your children don't handle your legacy well. They ruin your name. They squander your wealth. This is Solomon. It's quite pertinent as he passes the baton on to Rehoboam, who squanders all that his father had built. Paul has to have a trust. He has to also have the capability to prepare a Timothy to take over the church of Philippi and to pass the apostolic ministry on to a successor. This is his son. He is preparing to pass on that baton. It's an ancient act. Passing on your life's work to another to continue it. In our own privileged individualistic society, all of you could be whatever you want to be to a limited extent. But in the ancient world, if your father was a baker, you were a baker. You would inherit his bakery. You would inherit his engineering firm. You would inherit it and continue to run it. And in the South, as I've learned, a lot of this continues to much, uh, to much success. And in, our, in my last congregation, we had a judge whose son was a judge, whose son's son is likely to be a judge, <laughs> all in due time. We have lawyers who inherit mom and pop's lawyer firm who have inherited theirs. There's a lot of inheriting, and they continue the legacy. Black and Houston is a family name that we know from Tuscumbia. And it's a family name that will be passed down. It's being passed down. There's the baton is being passed even now. But the baton, that baton that must be passed, is a difficult work if we are not selfless. We must be a selfless people. We must recognize, as we talked about in men's ministry, that it is not our work that is not our greatness that contributes to our great work. It is the work of Christ himself. And we must remember that this is not our church, not my church tonight when I'm installed. It's not your elders' church. It's not your church. It's Christ's church. And the legacy that you leave upon this body and upon society itself is a legacy for and in Christ. 
and therefore you must be selfless. You must recognize that even as I read scripture, pray, preach, visit, that it is not my legacy that I'm bolstering up, but his legacy. And I have been entrusted to that legacy in my ministry. And I could tarnish it by my own doing, or I could, by God's grace, continue it. There must be selflessness from minister, from elder, from you as parents, fathers, sisters, brothers, children. We must learn selflessness. Learn the selflessness of Paul. We've read uh, Isaiah. We've seen the qualifications of officers in the church. Paul focuses on Christ's selflessness, and he learns himself to be selfless from it. And so too we, as we focus on Paul's ability to pass on the baton to his spiritual son, Timothy, we can learn Paul's selflessness as we learn Christ's selflessness. How better way, what better way to unify the body than through humility, identity, and selflessness? That will unify any church. That will unify and rectify Iodia's and Syntyche's issues. If they truly focus on Christ, if they focus on these three great aspects just found within this introduction, their relationship will be mended and the church will no longer be faltered and stunted. It's because the problem that Philippi faces, and perhaps even our congregation, I don't know, faces as well, is when there is any sort of bickering and division within the congregation, it distracts from the ministry of the Word. I'm reminded of a church in, in, in Yazoo City who split off from another church, and they could never get over that splitting. They were stuck on it. It became their identity. It became their focus. And because of it, they were distracted. Distracted from their true purpose, which was the mission of Christ in this world. And so even as you being planted 10, 12 years ago, we must grow out of those pains, out of those divisions, out of that suffering as a united people. Not focused on past problems or hurts, but seeking to lower ourselves in humility, lower ourselves in selflessness, and identifying ourselves in Christ. For if we are distracted by the phrase, our ministry will suffer. Because our ministry will be focused internally on problems rather than preaching Christ to a dead and dying world. When there is division, we are bad at our mission. So unify, as Paul calls the Philippians church, to unify in the gospel of Christ. Let's close in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we do pray for unity within our own congregation. We thank you for your grace in sustaining such a church throughout such tumultuous times. But we now pray, O oh Lord, in the midst of transition, in the midst of hope, in the midst of future, that your spirit would bless us, that we would be a unified congregation in the midst of a divided and divisive world, showing the face of Christ by our love, our humility, our identity, and by our selflessness. Give us grace, O oh Lord, as we pursue these great virtues in the faith. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.